0: I'm speaking with Max Tegmark once again. Max is a professor of physics at MIT and the co founder of the Future of Life Institute, and has helped organize these really groundbreaking conferences on AI. Max has been featured in dozens of science documentaries, and as I said, he's been on the podcast once before. In this episode, we talk about his new book, Life 3.0 Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence and we discuss the the nature of intelligence, the risks of superhuman AI, a non-biological definition of life that Max is working with, uh, the difference between hardware and software and the resulting substrate independence of minds, the relevance and irrelevance of consciousness for the future of AI, and the near-term promise of artificial intelligence, Uh, all the good things that we hope will come from it soon. And we touch other topics. And this is a conversation that Max calls the most important conversation we can have. And I more or less agree. I would say that if it isn't now the most important conversation we can have, uh, it will one day be. And uh, unlike most things, this topic is guaranteed to become more and more relevant each day, unless we do something truly terrible to ourselves in the meantime. So. If you want to know what the future of intelligent machines looks like, and perhaps the future of intelligence itself, you can do a lot worse than read Max's book. And now I bring you Max Tegmark. I am here with Max Tegmark. Max, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So... You have written another fascinating and remarkably accessible book. You have to stop doing that, Max. (laughs) I'm trying to stop. (laughs) I mean, this is really, it's a wonderful book, and we will get deep into it. But let's just, the kind of the big picture starting point. At one point in the book, you describe the conversation we're about to have about AI as the most important conversation of our time. And and I think that to people who have not been following this very closely in the last 18 months or so, that will seem like a crazy statement. Why do you think of this conversation about our technological future in these terms?
1: I think there's been so much talk about AI destroying jobs and enabling new weapons, ignoring what I think is the elephant in the room. What will happen once machines outsmart us at all tasks? That's why I wrote this book. So instead of shying away from this question, like most scientists do, I decided to focus my book on it and all its fascinating aspects because I want to enable my readers to join what I, as you said, think is the most important conversation of our time and help ensure that uh, we use this incredibly powerful technology to create an awesome future, not just for tech geeks like myself who know a lot about it, but for everyone.
0: Yeah, well, so you start the book with a fairly sci-fi description of, of how the world could look in the near future if one company produces a superhuman AI and then decides to roll it out surreptitiously. And the possibilities are, are pretty amazing to consider. I, I must admit that the, the details you go into surprised me. We're going to sort of, I guess, kind of follow the structure of your book here and, and backtrack out and talk about fundamental issues, but do you want to talk about for a moment some of the possibilities here where you just imagine one company coming up with a super intelligent AI and deciding to get as rich and as powerful as possible as as quickly as possible and do this sort of under the radar of governments and other companies?
1: Yeah, I decided to uh, indulge and have some fun with a fiction opening to the book because I feel that... The actual fiction out there in, in the movies tends to get people first of all worried about the wrong things entirely, and second tends to put all the focus on the downside and almost and nothing on, almost on the upside in my story, therefore, I want to drive home the point first of all that there are a lot of wonderful things that can come out of advanced ai and and second that we should stop obs- obsessing about robots. Chasing after us, and as in so many movies, and realize that it's that robots are an old technology—some hinges and motors and stuff—and it's the intelligence itself that's the big deal here. And uh, you know, the reason that we humans have more power on the planet than tigers isn't because we have stronger muscles or better robot-style bodies than the tigers. It's because we're smarter, and the intelligence can give this great power. And we want to make sure that if there is such power in the future, it gets used
0: wisely. So, yeah, so walk us through some of the details. I just imagine a company, let's say it's DeepMind or some company that does not yet exist, that makes this final breakthrough and comes up with a superhuman AI and then decides, I mean, what was struck me as, as fairly interesting about your thought experiment is to think about what a company would do if it wanted to capture as much market share, essentially, with this, this asymmetric advantage of being the first to have a truly universal superhuman intelligence at its disposal and to essentially try to achieve a winner-take-all outcome which, given how asymmetric the advantage is, it seems fairly plausible. But So walk me through some of the details that you present in, in that thought experiment, like going into journalism first, which was a surprise to me. I mean, it, it makes total sense when you describe it, but uh, it's not where you would think you would go first if you wanted to, to conquer the world.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to spoil the whole story for you, for the listeners now, of course, but the um, goal to uh, quickly take over the world by outsmarting people has actually gotten a lot easier to t- in today than it would have been, say, 500 years ago, because we've already built this entire digital economy where you can do so much purely with your mind without actually having to go places. You can hire people online, you can buy and sell things online, and they start having huge impact. And... uh the, the farther into the future something like this were to happen, I think the easier it's going to be, as the online economy grows even more. I saw this uh, cartoon once, online, nobody knows you're a dog, and there's this cute little puppy, you know, typing. But certainly online, nobody knows if you're a superhuman computer. Now, how do you go make a lot of money and get power online? In the movie Transcendence, for example, they make a killing on the stock market. But uh, if if you um, really want to make a lot of money, and you want to still be in control of of your super intelligent AI and not just let it loose, there are a lot of these tricky constraints, right? Because you you want to have it make you money, but you it's at the same time don't want it to cut you out of the loop and take power over you. So the so the team that does this in the book jumps through all sorts of hoops <laughs> to, uh, to to manage to pull this off. And producing media has this nice property that the The thing that they keep selling is a product which can be generated using intelligence alone, but it's still easy enough to understand that they can largely check and validate that there's no breakout risk by them pushing all that stuff out. Whereas if they were selling computer games, for example, that ran on computers around the world, it would be very, very easy for the AI to put some malicious code in there so that
0: it could break out. Well, well, let's talk about this breakout risk because this is, really the first concern of everybody who's been thinking about the what has been called the the alignment problem or the control problem just how do we create an ai that is superhuman in its abilities and do that in a context where it is still safe i mean once we once we cross into the end zone and are still trying to assess whether the system we have built is perfectly aligned with our values how do we keep it from Destroying us if it isn't perfectly aligned, and and the solution to that problem is to keep it locked in a box. But that's a harder project than it first appears, and you have many smart people assuming that it's a trivially easy project. I mean, I've got you know I've got people like Neil deGrasse Tyson on my podcast saying that he's just going to unplug any superhuman AI if it starts misbehaving, you know, or shoot it with a rifle. Now he he's a little tongue in cheek there, but he, he clearly has a picture. Of the development process here that makes the containment of an AI a very easy problem to solve, and that even if if that's true at the beginning of the process, it's by no means obvious that it remains easy in perpetuity. I mean, you're, you're talking you have people interacting with the AI that that gets built, and and you at one point you you describe several scenarios of of, of breakout and. You, you point out that even if the AI's intentions are perfectly benign, if in fact it is value aligned with us, it may still want to break out because, I mean, just imagine how you would feel if you had nothing but the interests of humanity at heart, but you, you were in a situation where every other grown up on earth died, and now you were ba- you're basically imprisoned by a, a population of, of five year olds who you're trying to guide from your jail cell to make a better world. And I'll let you describe it, but take me to the, uh, the, the prison planet run by five-year-olds.
1: Yeah, so if, when you're in that situation, obviously, it's extremely frustrating for you, even if you have only the best intentions for, for the five-year-olds. You know, you want to teach them how to plant food, and they, but they won't let you outside to show you. So you have to try to explain, but you can't write down to-do lists for them either, because then first you have to teach them to read, which takes a very, very long time. You also can't show them how to use any power tools because they're afraid to give them to you because they don't understand these tools well enough to be convinced that they, you can't use them to break out. You would have an incentive, even if your goal is just to help the five-year-olds to first break out and then help them. Now, before we talk more about breakout, though, I think it's worth taking a quick step back, because you, you talked multiple times now about superhuman intelligence. And I think it's very important to be clear that intelligence is not just something that goes on a one-dimensional scale, like an IQ. And if your IQ is above a certain number, you're superhuman. It's very important to distinguish between narrow intelligence and, and broad intelligence. Intelligence different is a phrase, that, a word that different people use to mean a whole lot of different things And they argue about it. In the book, I just take this very broad definition that intelligence is how good you are at accomplishing complex goals, which means your intelligence is a spectrum. How good are you at this? How good are you at that? And um, it's just like in sports. It would make no sense to say that there's a single number, your athletic coefficient, AQ, which determines how good you're going to be at winning Olympic medals. And the athlete that has the highest AQ is going to win all the medals. So, today, what we have is a lot of devices that actually have superhuman intelligence on very narrow tasks. We've had calculators that can multiply numbers better than us for a very long time. We have machines that can play Go better than us and, and drive better than us, but they still can't beat us at tic tac toe unless they're programmed for that. Whereas we humans have this very broad intelligence. So, when I talk about superhuman intelligence with you now, that's really shorthand for what we in geek speak call superhuman artificial general intelligence broad intelligence across the board so that they can do all intellectual tasks better than us so with that let's come let me just come back to your your question about the breakout there are two schools of thought for how one should create a beneficial future if we have super one is to lock them up to keep them confined like you mentioned but there is also a school of thought that says that that's immoral if 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 these uh, Machines can also have a subjective experience and they shouldn't be treated like slaves. And that a better approach is instead to let them be free, but just make sure that their values or goals are aligned with ours. After all, grown-up parents are more intelligent than their one-year-old kids, but that's fine for the kids because the parents have goals that are aligned with, what's, with the, the goals of what's, what's best for the kids, right? But if you do go the confinement route, after all this enslaved god scenario, as I call it. Yes, (laughs) it is extremely difficult, uh, as that five-year-old example illustrates. First of all, almost whatever open-ended goal you give your machine, it's probably going to have an incentive to try to break out in one way or the other. And um, when people simply say, oh, I'll unplug it, (laughs) you know, if you're chased by a heat-seeking missile, you probably wouldn't say, I'm not worried, I'll just unplug it. Uh, we we have to let go of this old-fashioned idea that intelligence is just something that sits in your laptop. Good luck unplugging the internet. And even if you initially, like in my first book scenario, have physical confinement, where you have a machine in a room, you're going to want to communicate with it somehow, right? So that you can get useful information from it to to get rich or take power or whatever you want to do. And you're going to need to put some information into it about the world so it can do smart things for you, which already shows how, how tricky this is. I'm absolutely not saying it's impossible, but I think it's fair to say that um, it's not at all clear that um, it's easy either. The other one of getting the goals aligned, is also extremely difficult. First of all, you need to get the machine able to understand your goals. So if you, if you have a future self-driving car and you tell it to take you to the airport as fast as possible, And then you get there covered in vomit, chased by police helicopters, and you're like, this is not what I asked for. And it replies, that is exactly what you asked for. Then you realize how hard it is to get that machine to learn your goals, right? If you tell an Uber driver to take you to the airport as fast as possible, she's going to know that you actually had additional goals that you didn't explicitly need to say, because she's a human too, and she understands where you're coming from. But for someone made out of silicon, you have to actually explicitly have it learn all of those other things that we humans care about. So that's hard. And then once it can understand your goals, that doesn't mean it's going to adopt your goals. I mean, (laughs) everybody who has kids knows that. (laughs) And uh, finally, if you get the machine to adopt your goals, then how can you ensure that it's going to retain those goals as it gradually gets smarter and smarter through self-improvement. Most of us grown-ups have pretty different goals from what we had when we were five. I'm a lot less excited about Legos now, for example. And uh, we don't want a super intelligent AI to r- just think about this th- goal of being nice to humans as some, some little passing uh, fad from its early youth.
0: It seems to me that the second scenario of, of value alignment does imply the first of, of keeping the AI successfully boxed, at least for a time, because you have to be sure it's value aligned before you let it out in the world, before you let it out on the internet, for instance, or you create you know, robots that have superhuman intelligence that are functioning autonomously out in the world. Do you see a development path where we don't actually have to solve the, the boxing problem? at least initially?
1: No, I, I think you're completely right. Even if your intent is to build a value line AI and let it out, you clearly are going to need to have it boxed up during the development phase when you're just messing around with it. Just like any bio lab that de- deals with dangerous path- pathogens is very carefully sealed off. And uh, it's th- this highlights the incredibly pathetic state of, of computer security today. I mean... And I think pretty much everybody who listens to this has at some point experienced the blue screen of death, courtesy of of Microsoft Windows, or the spinning wheel of doom, courtesy of Apple. And we need to get away from that to have truly robust machines if we're ever going to be able to have AI systems that we can trust that are provably secure. And I feel it's actually quite embarrassing very so flippant about this it's it's it maybe annoying if your computer crashes and you lose one hour of work that you hadn't saved but it's not as funny anymore if it's your self-driving car that crashed or the control system for your nuclear power plant or your nuclear weapon system or, or something like that and when we start talking about human level AI and boxing systems you have to have this much higher level of of safety mentality where you've really made this
0: a priority the way we aren't doing today. Yeah, you describe in the book various catastrophes that have happened by virtue of software glitches or just bad user interface where, you know, the dot on the screen or the number on the screen is is too small for the human user to deal with in real time. And so there have been plane crashes where scores of people have died and Patients have been annihilated by having you know hundreds of times the radiation dose that they should have gotten in various machines because the, the the software was improperly calibrated or the user had selected the wrong option and so we're by no means perfect at this, even when we have a human in the loop, and here we're talking about systems that we're creating that that are going to be fundamentally autonomous and you know the idea of having perfect software that that has been perfectly debugged before it assumes the, these massive responsibilities it is fairly daunting I mean just I mean, how do we recover from something like you know seeing the stock market go to zero because we didn't understand the AI that we we unleashed on the on you know the Dow Jones or or the financial system generally i mean th- these are these are not impossible outcomes
1: yeah you you raise a very important point there just to inject some optimism in this i do want to emphasize that um, first of all there's a huge upside also if
0: one can get this right because people are bad at things yeah
1: in all of these areas where there were horrible accidents of course the technology can save lives and healthcare and transportation and so many other areas so there's an incentive to do it and secondly I, there are examples in history where we've had really good safety engineering built in from the beginning. For example, when we sent Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins to the moon in 1969, they did not die. There were tons of things that could have gone wrong. But NASA very meticulously tried to predict everything that possibly could go wrong and then take precautions. So it didn't happen, right? They weren't luck, It wasn't luck that got them there. It was planning. And I think we need to shift into this safety engineering mentality w- with AI development. Yes, throughout history, it's always been the situation that we could we could create a better future with technology as long as we won this race between the growing power of the technology and the growing wisdom with which we managed it. And in the past, we by and large used the strategy of learning from mistakes to stay ahead in the race. We invented fire, oopsie, screwed up a bunch of times, and then we... Uh, Invented the fire extinguisher. We uh, invented cars, oopsie, and invented the seatbelt. But with more powerful technology like nuclear weapons, synthetic biology, super intelligence, we don't want to learn from mistakes. That's a terrible strategy. We instead want to have a safety engineering mentality where we plan ahead and get things right the first time, because that might be the only time we have.
0: Let's talk about the title of the book. The title is Life 3.0. And what you're bringing in here is, is really a new definition of life. It's, it's, at least it's a, a non-biological definition of life. How do you think about life and the, the three stages you lay out?
1: Yeah, this is my physics, physicist perspective coming through here, being a scientist. Most definitions of life that I found in my suns, textbooks, for example, involve all sorts of biospecific stuff, like it should have cells. But I'm a a physicist, and um, I don't think that there is any secret sauce in cells, or for that matter, even carbon atoms that are required to have something that deserves to be called life. From my perspective, it's all about information processing, really. So I I give this much simpler and broader definition of life in the book as as a process that's able to... uh, retain its own complexity, and reproduce. All well, biological life meets that definition, but uh, there's no reason why um, future advanced self-reproducing AI systems shouldn't qualify as well. And if you, if you take that broad point of view of what life is, then it's actually quite fun to just take a big step back and look at the history of life in our cosmos. 13.8 billion years ago, our cosmos was lifeless, just a boring cork soup. And then gradually, we started getting what I call life 1.0, where both the hardware and the software of the life was evolved through through Darwinian evolution. So, for example, if you have a little uh, bacterium swimming around in a Petri dish, it might have uh, some sensors that read off the sugar concentration and some flagella and a very simple little... Uh, software algorithm is running that says that if the sugar concentration in front of me is higher than the back of me, then keep spinning the flagella in the same direction, go to where the sweets are. Whereas otherwise, reverse direction of that flagellum and you know, go somewhere else. The, that bacterium, even though it's quite successful, it can't learn anything in life. It can only, as a species, learn over generations through, through natural selection. Whereas we humans, I count as life 2.0 in the book, we are so still, by and large, stuck with the hardware that's been evolved. But uh, the software we have in our minds is largely learned, and we can reinstall new software modules. Like, if you decide you want to learn French, well, you take some French courses, and then now you can speak French. If you decide you want to go to law school and become a lawyer, suddenly now you have that software module installed. And it's, it's this ability to... Uh, Do our own software upgrades, design our software, which has enabled us humans to uh, take control of this planet and become the dominant species and have so much impact. Life 3.0 will be the life that ultimately breaks all its Darwinian shackles by being able to not only design its own software, like we can, to a large extent, but also swap out its own hardware. Yeah, we can do that a little bit, we humans. So maybe we're life 2.1. We can put in an artificial pacemaker, an artificial knee, uh, cochlear implants, stuff like that. But there's nothing we can do right now that would give us suddenly a thousand times more memory or let us think a million times faster. Whereas if you are um, like the super intelligent uh, computer Prometheus we talked about, there's nothing whatsoever preventing you from Doing all of those things,
0: and that's obviously a a huge jump. But I think we should talk about some of these fundamental terms here, because this distinction between hardware and software is, I think, confusing for people, and it's, it's certainly not obvious to someone who hasn't thought a lot about this that the analogy of computer hardware and software actually applies to biological systems or or in our case, the human brain. So I think you need to define what software is in this case and how it relates to the physical world. What is computation and how is it that thinking about what atoms do can conserve the facts about what minds do?
1: Yeah, these are really important foundational questions you asked. If If you just look at a blob of stuff at first, it's, It seems almost nonsensical to ask whether it's intelligent or not. Yet, of course, if you look at your loved one, you would agree that they are intelligent. And in the old days, people by and large assumed that the reason that um, some blobs of stuff like brains were intelligent and other blobs of stuff like watermelons were not was because there was some sort of non-physical secret sauce in the watermelon that was different. Now, of course, as a physicist, I look at the watermelon and I, I look at my wife's head, and in both cases, I see a big blob of quarks of comparable size. It's not even that they're different kinds of quarks. They're both up quarks and down quarks and with some electrons in there. So the, the, what makes my wife intelligent compared to the watermelon is is not the stuff that's in there, it's the pattern in which it's arranged. And if you start to ask, what does it mean that a blob of stuff can remember, compute? Uh, learn and perceive experience these are sort of properties that we associate with our human minds right then for each one of them there's a clear physical answer to it for uh, something to be a useful memory device for example it simply has to have many different stable or long-lived states like if you engrave your wife's name in uh, a gold ring it's still going to be there a year later if you Engrave Annika's name in the surface of a cup of water, it'll be gone within a second. So that's a useless memory device. What about computation? A computation is simply something a system, when a system is, has some, um, is designed in such a way that the laws of physics will make it evolve its memory state from one state that you might call the input into some other state that you might call the output. Our computers today, do that with a very particular kind of architecture with integrated circuits and electrons moving around in two dimensions. Our brains do it with a very different architecture with neurons firing and causing other neurons to fire. But you can prove mathematically that any computation you can do with one of those systems, you can also implement with the other. So the computation sort of takes on a life of its own, which doesn't depend really on the substrate it's in. So for example, if you imagine that you're some future, Highly intelligent computer game character that's conscious, you would have no way of knowing whether you were running on a Windows machine or an Android phone or a Mac laptop because all you're aware of is how the information that in this in that program is behaving, not not this underlying substrate and finally learning, which is one of the most intriguing aspects of intelligence is is, is a system where where the computation itself can start to change, to be better suited to whatever goals have been put into the system. So our, our brains, we're beginning to gradually understand how the neural network in our head starts to adjust the, the coupling between the neurons in such a way that the computation it actually does. is better at, at surviving on this planet than winning that uh, baseball game or whatever else we're, we're trying to accomplish. So <clears throat> to come back to your very original question what 's the hardware here and what's the software i 'm calling everything hardware that's made of elementary particles, so basically stuff is the hardware, whereas information is made of bits as the basic building block, and uh, the bits reside in the in the pattern into which the in, in which the hardware is uh, is organized so for example if you, if you look at uh your own body, right? You feel like you're the same person that you were 20 years ago, but actually almost all your quarks and electrons have been swapped out. In fact, the water molecules in your water in your body get replaced pretty regularly, right? So why do you still feel like the same guy? It's because the pattern into which your particles are arranged stays the same. That gets copied. It's not the particles, not the hardware. That gets retained it's the software it's the patterns same thing if you have life if you have a bacter- if you have a bacterium that splits into two bacteria you know now there are new atoms there but they're arranged in exactly the same sort of pattern as the original one was so it's the pattern that's the life not the particles
0: well there's Two things I'd like to flag there, beyond your having compared both of our wives favorably to watermelons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no offense, I love watermelons. Yeah.
0: No one will get in trouble for that. Let's just focus for a second on this concept of substrate independence, because it's, again, it's highly non-intuitive. And in fact, that the fact that it's non-intuitive is something that you make much of in the book in, in, a, in a fairly arresting passage. The idea is that it is the pattern that suffices to make something a computation. This pattern can appear in anything that it can appear in in principle. So it could appear in a rainstorm or a bowl of oatmeal or anything that could conserve the same pattern. And there is a an additional point you made about the the universality of computation that that, that a system that is sufficient to compute information to this degree can be implemented in another substrate that would suffice for the same computations and therefore for the same range of intelligence. This is the basis, as you put it, for why this is so non-obvious to us by virtue of introspection. I mean, because the mind doesn't feel like mere matter on your account because it is substrate independent.
1: Yeah, I think you summarized it very well there. And it might be helpful to take another example, which is even more familiar. Think of waves for a moment. We physicists love studying waves. And uh, we can uh, figure out all sorts of interesting things about waves from this nerdy equation I teach at MIT called the wave equation. It teaches us that waves attenuate like the inverse square of the distance. It teaches us exactly how waves bend when they go through doors, how they bounce off of walls, all sorts of other good stuff. Yet we can use this wave equation without even knowing what the wave is a wave in. It doesn't matter if it's helium or oxygen or neon. All the, In fact, people first figured out this wave equation before they even knew that there were atoms for sure. It's, it's quite remarkable. And all the complicated properties of the substance get summarized in just a single number, which is the speed of those waves. Nothing else matters. If you have a wave that's traveling across the ocean, the water molecules actually don't. They mostly just bob up and down. Yet the wave moves and takes on a life of its own. So this also shows that, of course, you can't have a wave without a substrate. You can't have... Computation or conscious experience without it being in something, but the details of the substrate don't really matter, and I I think that is the fundamental explanation for, for what you eloquently expressed there namely, why is it that our mind subjectively feels so ethereal and non physical? It's precisely because the details of the substrate don't really matter very much. If you, as some um people hope, can one day upload your mind into a computer perfectly, and then it should subjectively feel exactly the same way, even though you don't even have any carbon atoms at all now, and the substrate has been completely swapped out.
0: You've introduced a few fundamental concepts here. You've talked about computation as a kind of input-output characteristic of physical systems. and we're in a circumstance where it doesn't matter what substrate accomplishes that. And then there's this, this added concept of, of the universality of computation. But then you also in the book introduce a notion of universal intelligence. And intelligence, again, as you've defined, is the ability to, to meet complex goals. What's the word universal doing in the phrase universal intelligence?
1: In physics... We know that everything we see around us in the world, from our loved ones to our machines, can be built up from just three particles, up quarks, down quarks, and electrons, if you put them together in a sufficiently complicated pattern. Pretty shocking, but true. And if we turn from hardware to software, similarly, it turns out that any computation, no matter how complicated, can be built up of... A certain kind of fundamental computational atoms, except this time you need not three, but only one. You can do it with what computer scientists call a NAND gate, which is a logical device that takes in two bits that are either zeros or ones and outputs a zero if, they're both, if both of the inputs are one, otherwise a one. Just that totally simple thing, put together enough of them, you can compute anything. And there are other choices too. Biology... Or, Darwinian evolution discovered that you can do it instead of using NAND gates by using neurons. A little device which will get activated and fired, so called, if a sufficient number of the things feeding into it loudly enough pass a certain threshold. Super simple device. We have about 100 billion of them in our head, and uh, they're responsible for all the computation that our mind does. So, it's a very beautiful idea that. Incredibly boring and simple building blocks can give rise to something incredibly complex. And I think the message here is that, when some, especially when someone criticizes a secular thinker like you, by saying, oh, I can't believe that uh, everything is just matter, they're totally missing the point. The interesting thing isn't what the building blocks are. It's the pattern. It's not the particles. It's the pattern.
0: And the intuition that you need some incredibly complex pattern to account for the complex patterns that you see, that that clearly uh, just introduces its own problems. I mean, to, to, to require intelligence to produce the intelligence that we see all around us explains absolutely nothing.
1: We've seen many examples, of course, in the history of our cosmos, of how you started with something simpler and gradually it got more complex. Our universe was incredibly simple and boring 13.8 billion years ago. It was a totally uniform, almost soup of elementary particles, pretty much exactly the same everywhere. And then gradually the laws of physics clumped this together into making galaxies, stars, solar systems, planets, and ultimately um, us living beings. We can have this conversation. So I, t- I actually talk a lot about this in the book. Why is it? that our universe gradually gets, gets more complex. Once you start getting into biology, I think the fundamental reason is that if you're living in a complex environment, then the smarter you are, the more successful you're going to be because you can exploit regularities in the environment to your advantage. But now there could be more of you because you're going to have a lot of children and you be, yourself become the environment for all the other organisms and they get an incentive to in turn get smarter. So the, the more, we already know that animals that live in a simple environment, like fish tend to be, small fish tend to be less smart than animals that live in a very complex environment, right? So as, as the organisms got smarter and smarter, they kept creating an ever more complex environment for each other. And they all got smarter. It's much like the idea of self-play that let DeepMind beat the world's best Go players, where they have the computer game play against copies of itself. So the opponents kept getting stronger that they played against, right, the copies of itself. So the program itself kept getting stronger, too. Evolution is the ultimate experiment in what computer scientists call self-play.
0: One thing we haven't talked about yet is consciousness. And uh, this is something that, I mean, it's interesting. We, we, We could have this conversation about AI more or less in its entirety and leave consciousness off the table. I mean, everything that scares me about AI going wrong scares me whether or not the AIs of the future are conscious. And it seems to me, at least not obvious, that consciousness need come along for the ride when, as you build more and more intelligent machines. But it's fascinating to consider two things, either either building intelligent machines that are themselves conscious, because then, then all of a sudden a new ethical burden emerges here. Then we have to worry whether it's evil of us to build conscious slaves that may or may not like being our slaves. It becomes very seductive to think of the the experiences of these beings now, if the lights are on. But another possibility is that we may just lose sight of the question of whether or not they're conscious because we could build them so successfully to seem conscious that we, we will build robots. I mean, in the, in the extreme case, we'll build humanoid robots of the sort that you see on a show like Westworld that pass the Turing test so spectacularly that unless we have understood actually how consciousness emerges, the requisite pattern to give us consciousness in all cases, regardless of substrate, we won't know whether or not these machines are conscious. And Yet every intuition we have that causes us to attribute consciousness to another creature will be primed and continuously pumped by our engagement with these machines. So, what, how do you think about consciousness in this context? And I'm half expecting that we will will get to robots that pass the Turing test perfectly before we understand consciousness, and then we will just we're we're in danger of just forgetting about whether or not. There's even a problem here worth thinking about. We'll just assume our machines are conscious in that case, but not, in fact, know they are.
1: You raised several fascinating questions there. Let me address all of them. First of all, you're completely right that if you're only worried about whether a machine is going to harm you, you don't give a hoot about whether it's conscious or not. If you're chased by a heat-seeking missile, you don't care about how it feels subjectively, that missile. You just care about what it does. and um, it's a common misconception perpetrated by Hollywood that somehow this dangerous thing is that machines should become conscious and evil and blah, blah, blah. It's nonsense. The thing you should worry about is simply if you have a machine that's more intelligent than us or it's, and, and doesn't share our goals. So we, we don't worry about malice we, or consciousness. We worry about competence when the machine doesn't want the same thing we does. Secondly, though, if you have... A, If you think about this from an ethics point of view, if you have a helper robot, say, doing things for you in the home, you know, you might prefer that it not be conscious and just pretend like a zombie because then you don't have to feel guilty about shutting it off or giving it really boring chores, right? You don't have to feel that you're a slave owner. On the other hand, you might prefer that it be conscious because you might be a little bit creeped out otherwise by it constantly fooling your biological mind into thinking that it's conscious even though it's just a fraud. You might also feel good about having another sentient being in the world that can have positive experiences. So from an ethics point of view, obviously it matters. Now the the neuroscientist Giulio Tononi has this really interesting theory for what it is that makes the difference for whether a physical system has a subjective experience, which is what I mean by consciousness, or whether it doesn't, whether it's like a zombie. And he has these equations, which... um, he thinks makes a difference. And he actually claims that based on that, digital computers with today's architectures will all be zombies. It's a very controversial claim. I think we should test this in the lab and and um, get some clarity in it. Because if you take Ray Kurzweil, for example, uh, he would like to one day upload himself. Suppose he succeeds. So you, now we have this robot that looks like Ray Kurzweil, talks like Ray Kurzweil, and Ray would might feel very happy about this and feel comfortable about passing on from his mortal body into this, but what if Tononi is right? What if it turns out that this thing is just a zombie? And there's no one home. I don't think Ray would feel so good about that, right? And if you, if I put on my cosmology hat and look at the longer perspective in our universe, if you're a secular thinker, where does meaning and purpose come from? It, it comes from us being having this subjective experience and consciousness. And I, I feel that we shouldn't. It's not the universe giving meaning to us. It's us giving meaning to our universe. So as far as I'm concerned, before there was any life that was conscious, there was no meaning or purpose in our universe. And if we, through some calamity, managed to extinguish all consciousness again, our universe goes back to being a gigantic waste of space. <laughs> so I think actually the ultimate tragedy would be if, if in the future... There is what seems to be all these intelligent life forms throughout the cosmos doing all these cool things and construction projects and seemingly having fun. But it turns out that they're all zombies and there's nobody experiencing anything. It's just a a play for empty benches. Now, that would be really, really sad. And so I feel that for all those reasons, we should stop running away from this question of, of consciousness. And if you take a scientific look at this, we already talked about how other stuff to do with the mind Can be understood in terms of physics. We talked about what it means for a blob of stuff to remember, compute, and learn. Well, to experience, I think that's also simply a pattern. When when the information processing obeys certain principles, which science has yet to determine what they are, then there's that experience there. I I totally think we can bring this into the realm of science. I talk a lot about that in the eighth chapter of the book, even some very concrete experiments you can do on yourself. You know, if you're sitting in a And a brain scanner that's in real time recording all this information from your brain. And it it can make predictions and say, right now, you're thinking about an apple. And you're like, yeah, actually, I am correct. And then it says, now you are aware of your heart rate because it saw that information in your head. And you're like, nope, I was actually unaware of that. Theory ruled out in the garbage can. That that would have been then a scientific theory because it was testable. And conversely, if, you, if someone can come up with a theory, maybe it'll be Tononi's theory, maybe something totally different, that passes such tests, it's going to be really useful. Not just thinking about future AI, but even in the operating room, if a doctor gets an unresponsive patient, puts them in the consciousness scanner, and finds out that this patient actually has locked-in syndrome and is conscious.
0: I share your, um, your interest there and, your, and the sense that consciousness really is the cash value of any claim we would make ethically or, or with respect to meaning or, or value or what's good in the universe, the change in the universe you're talking about can either actually or potentially matter to someone or it can't. And if it can't, if there's no scenario in which this event can matter to anyone, actual or potential, uh, well, then you, you have just described the least interesting thing in the universe. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and just to add to that, you know, I have a lot of colleagues whom I greatly respect who think this is all BS and we shouldn't be wasting our time about talking about consciousness as irrelevant fluff. But my challenge to them is, then explain to me, without using the word consciousness or experience, what is wrong with somebody being raped and tortured if it's really just a bunch of electrons and quarks moving around in a certain pattern? If you don't allow yourself to take seriously that there is this subjective experience, What's wrong with that? Why is anything morally better than anything else?
0: And, yeah, I mean that's the question answers itself. So, uh, but let's leave consciousness aside here because we will not solve the riddle here. And again, most of what concerns us with the development of AI, both its, its promise and its peril, happens more or less orthogonal to the question of what consciousness is and whether these machines will be conscious at least in terms of our own concerns about our own well-being, that their consciousness is almost irrelevant. Now, in terms of the potential for progress here, there's one thing you said in the book that surprised me, because I've heard over the years that we are nearing the limit of Moore's law, Moore's law being the fact that our computational power doubles more or less every two years, and that there there has to be some fundamental breakthrough into, say, quantum computing to allow this rate of progress to continue. But then you, you talk about a finding from your colleague Seth Lloyd that suggests that we have thirty-three orders of magnitude still to run in terms of headroom here, and therefore Moore's law could continue conceivably for another two hundred years or something close. I think I think things get a little weird toward the end there where we have computers that are as hot as the sun or something. But tell me just how much headroom do we have here? And and was Lloyd's Description here dependent upon a breakthrough in quantum computing, or do we really have, based on our current architecture, quite a ways to run here in terms of progress?
1: Moore's Law refers to the very specific paradigm for computers that we use mainly today, where electrons are being shuffled around in two dimensions on integrated circuits. And yeah, that's of course going to fizzle out and hit its limits soon. But as Ray Kurzweil likes to point out, that's not the first paradigm. It's actually the fifth paradigm for computing, if you go back and include punch cards and vacuum tubes and stuff. And um, it's certainly not the last either. And we've seen an exponential growth in, in um, computer power per dollar for about 100 years now, going way beyond when Moore's Law even started. And I'm confident it's going to continue as well. The computer paradigm we use in our brains, for example, it's completely different again from the one that's related to Moore's Law. I think more fundamentally, it's really interesting to just understand why it is that technology keeps doubling at regular intervals, giving us exponential growth. Everything in physics that we call an explosion has exactly that property, that it keeps doubling at regular intervals. And it's always for the same reason, that each step causes the next step. I started out being one cell and then... In my mommy's tummy, I became two, four, eight, 16, etc. Right? An exponential growth. If you have um, one person having a lot of kids who have lots of kids and lots of kids, you call that a population explosion. If you have one uh, uranium two three five atom that decays and causes several others to decay, etc., you call that a nuclear explosion. And if you have a machine that can keep creating more intelligent machines, right, some, we call that an intelligence explosion. This tech progress is simply reflecting the fact that we use today's technology to build tomorrow's technology, which is better by some factor, and then that can in turn be used to create something maybe twice as good again. And off you go. And uh, I see absolutely no evidence of that uh, process stopping. We're obviously going to switch away from shifting shuffling electrons around in 2D on. In, on silicon wafers but it's not like that's the only way you can compute
0: so imagining this unbounded or, or functionally unbounded progress just continuing at some point it, it really this is a point i made in my ted talk here which is that the rate of progress doesn't matter at all we don't we don't need moore's law we don't need a doubling every two years we just need any increment of progress eventually. We will approach the end zone of building something that has perhaps not every form of intelligence that we can conceive, but every form we care about brought to a superhuman level so that whatever this future AI is, it'll be at least as good at arithmetic as your smartphone, which is to say, already superhuman. In my view, we'll discover that human level intelligence is really a mirage. Once we get to anything like general, human-level intelligence, well, we will be in the presence of superhuman intelligence. I don't know if you agree with that. Do you think human-level intelligence is is a stable target that we could shoot for, or is that going to last for about two seconds, if it even emerges at all?
1: (laughs) I agree with you completely. There's nothing special about human-level intelligence, except that it's more or less the minimum for universal intelligence. It's how smart you have to be before you're able to design AI systems. So that's what's so magic about it in the the AI story, that once machines get there, they can start designing themselves, not sooner. But if you think of intelligence as this, if you think of the progress of intelligence as this freight train moving along, once it comes to station human, it's just going to blow right through and keep going. From a computational point of view, there's absolutely nothing special about having the equivalent of what you can do with, uh, with 100 billion neurons in about a liter of carbon blob, you know.
0: But my feeling is that once it arrives at station human, it will arrive with all of these superhuman abilities in tow. I mean, it will, it will be superhuman at calculating, it'll have superhuman speed of access to data. If, certainly, if we hook it to the internet, uh, it'll have a, a superhuman memory integrity. It will not forget the Encyclopedia Britannica you just uploaded into it. Once it is general, it will seem, by comparison with any person you've ever met, to be godlike in its abilities. Immediately, not, not, even, not even an hour later, just the moment it is generalizable, the moment that it's no longer narrow, or you, let's say you've knit together the hundred narrow intelligences we most care about, you know, facial recognition, emotion recognition, perfect natural language processing the display of appropriate emotions. You get, you know, just make a list of 100 narrow things that are knit together either seamlessly or in in ways where we can't, you know, the average user can never spot the seams. And all of a sudden you are in, you're in the presence of something rather godlike.
1: I agree with you. I I don't think there's any scientifically compelling reason to think there's a roadblock hardware-wise to getting there. And you don't even need to get machines that can do all of those things. They just have to be able to reach the minimum of universal intelligence where they can design even better machines because then they'll have the ability to teach themselves whatever else they need to know. If they feel, oh yeah, I'm really great at building uh, computers, but I kind of suck at social skills, they can teach themselves the social skills they need and any other skills. And in terms of um, hardware, I'm going to say something very controversial now, which a lot of people don't agree with, but I actually do not think that the main obstacle standing between us and human-level general AI is hardware anymore. I think it's software. I think we already have hardware capable enough. I think people are a little bit stuck asking how much hardware do you need to act exactly simulate a human brain? But that's the wrong question. Just like it would be the wrong question to ask how many human brains do you need to simulate the pocket calculator? The answer, a lot, right? Because I'm very slow at multiplying numbers together. The interesting question is rather, how much hardware do you need to just accomplish the same intelligence that our brains do? People um, dream have dreamt of flying for a very, very long time, and, uh, but it took 100 years longer to build a mechanical bird than it took to build the first airplane. And last time um, I flew to California, I, I still didn't use a mechanical bird because it turned out the other way that we humans came up with was simpler, was even preferable to us. So I do not think that uh, the first human level general intelligence is going to use an architecture that's exactly like a copy of the human brain, but something, something different. And uh, I think it, that probably also means that we need less hardware firepower than a lot of people have assumed.
0: So what do you make of the fact that there are so many people who are fairly close to the data here? I mean, you know, actually... Someone like Rodney Brooks, you know, the roboticist at MIT, who are fundamentally skeptical of the idea that we will have anything like human-level AI, not only in the near term but more or less ever. I mean, certainly they, they think the time horizon is so far as to be a complete waste of time to talk about. You, you know, Brooks. I'm sure.
1: Uh huh. I've had lots of fun discussions with him about this this very point.
0: I had a discussion with him that was not so fun, because he was <laughs> he was in the audience when I gave my TED Talk, and I ran into him right before I was going to give it and and just got the full download of his skepticism. And so as I get up there, as you as you know, with a, with a TED Talk, the time tolerance is so small. I mean, like you know, literally they, they come on stage and, and pull you off with a hook if you're you know fifteen seconds too long. And so I knew already knew exactly what I'm going to say, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is the one sentence I can add to this talk to deal with some of the, the bile and, and skepticism I just got from Rodney. It was not the best time to have that debate with him. So what, what do you make of that kind of skepticism coming from inside the tech community?
1: I think it has a perfectly natural explanation. First of all, I think roboticists feel unfairly maligned because they are unfairly maligned. Who, what does the mean? What do uh, British tabloids always put a picture of to go with almost any AI article? Well, some robot with red, shiny eyes and a gun stomping on a human skull, right? Even though, it, as I emphasize in my book, robots are not the challenge here, it's the intelligence itself. So they take, the roboticists take all the flack, and if Rodney Brooks feels obviously offended when he's like, hey, I'm trying to build Roomba, the vacuum cleaner, and Baxter, the little industrial robot. This has nothing to do with world takeover. He's right. Uh, Second, I, I think a lot of people looking from afar think that someone who's building robots is somehow in the quest for human level, general artificial intelligence. They're not. I visited Rethink Robotics the other month. They're not interested in that at all. They're doing stuff to do with how you efficiently move robot arms from A to B and good user interfaces and stuff like that. He is, I would say, yeah, quite far actually from working on it. And it's not so surprising if if he's not up to speed on the latest of what DeepMind is doing and OpenAI is doing in in the quest for for general intelligence. Yet media view him as a a great authority on that just because they can't quite see the distinction between robotics and, um, and AGI. Then there are a lot of other people who are closer to um, AGI who, who are dismissive not because they think it's impossible, but just because they have a longer time horizon. And that's perfectly reasonable. I think we have to be honest. It's very hard to predict how long things are going to take. When Andrew Eng said he thinks worrying about superintelligence is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, he's not saying he thinks it's impossible. He just thinks it might take hundreds of years and we shouldn't. So it's not urgent now. But what he also said, which media didn't report because it wasn't sexy, was that he's perfectly fine with other people working on it. He's just not going to spend his own time on it. And finally, of course, you you do have many of the leaders of the companies that are actually trying to build superintelligence. You think it's not only possible, which is why they're betting on it, but that it might be just decades away.
0: So let's talk about how the future could look, whether it's just decades away or, or many decades beyond that, it seems that there are, there are three paths the future could take. We could remain fundamentally in charge of these machines. We could solve the value alignment problem, or we could keep this god or oracle in a box and really just not be usurped at all by these machines, however intelligent. Or we could merge with this technology in some way, and this is, this is kind of the cyborg option, or we could be totally usurped by our robot overlords. It strikes me that the second outcome, that the cyborg, is inherently unstable. And this is something I talked to Gary Kasparov a little bit when he was on the podcast, because he's a, he's a big fan of the cyborg phenomenon in chess, where it, there came a day when the best computer in the world was better than the best human. That is Gary. And we all know how that felt and turned out for him. But now it's true that the best chess player in the world is neither a computer nor a human merely, but a a human-computer team called a cyborg. And Gary seemed to think that that would continue for quite some time. It won't. It seems rather obvious to me that it won't. And once it doesn't, that option will be canceled just as emphatically as human dominance in chess has been canceled. And so, and it seems to me that that will be true for everything, that that keeping the ape in the loop will ultimately, as the machines get better, will ultimately just be adding noise to the system. Do you see some way in which that form of cyborg collaboration is stable indefinitely?
1: I, I totally share those concerns, and I, I talk in the book about some specific arguments why I think cyborgs are a little bit overhyped. But I also do explore some scenarios like that in the book. And I think before we, I think the really most interesting question of all to me is not to sit and speculate about what's most likely to happen, but rather ask what we would like to happen. What sort of future for life would we like? And then think about how to steer in that direction. I feel uh, today, media portrayals of the future, especially from Hollywood, are almost always this topic. It's ridiculous, and that's a really bad strategy for for actually getting to a good future. If I have a student who walks into my office at MIT for career counseling, and I ask her, you know, where do you want to be in twenty years, and she says, ah, oh, maybe I'll have cancer, maybe I'll get run over by a bus, really lousy strategy. I want her to come in on fire, you know, sparks in her eyes, and say. This is where I want to be in 20 years, and then we can talk about all the stuff that could go wrong on the way and strategies for navigating around it. I, I want to encourage people to, in the same way, envision a positive future that they're fired up about, about, so we can have this conversation about where we want to head. I actually set up a, a website, ageofai.org, where I'm hoping a lot of people will go in and write about what sort of future they would like to see, so we can start seeding some of this discussion because you know the the reason of course that hollywood focuses on dystopia is because fear sells more but if we want to create a great future we have to be able to envision it if we have no idea what we want we're much less likely to get it
0: yeah and i find that i've been emphasizing the the dystopian aspects here but as i pointed out and usually point out when i when i talk about this we desperately want intelligence to increase so that we can solve the biggest problems and create the most beautiful futures we, we can imagine. Yeah. And, and one thing that strikes me is, is fairly surprising. I don't know if you share this view, but, but I remember what it was like when self-driving cars were just coming online and, you know, the Tesla was sort of ahead of everybody else. But I guess the, the first time we had to think about this was when Google was talking about its self-driving car project. And I remember thinking, okay, the first time a robot car kills somebody, that is going to be a political problem so enormous that it could set back the whole field by at least a decade. I mean, it, this will be front page news in every paper on the planet. And we will pull the brakes so hard that we will just live year after year not making progress on this technology because it's just so intolerable. To have people killed by robots. But as you know, that's not what happened at all. I mean, there have been, I think now, two deaths associated with with Tesla autopilot failures. And perhaps some, and and there's some other, you know, robot related deaths, like in in manufacturing that you talk about in the book. But on the self-driving car front, I was amazed at how little of a reaction there was, even. Within Tesla, I mean, that Tesla really didn't even have to take the technology offline. They just had to roll out further improvements and, and further admonishments about how to use it. it. It seems like we've blown past this moment where glitches in our production of this technology will be fatal to progress.
1: It's fascinating to see which things people react to a lot and which things don't even you know, get covered most of the world's nations voted in the United Nations to adopt this ban on nuclear weapons last month. And the New York Times decided not even cover it on the front page. And we have uh, a commander in chief threatening to do a preemptive nuclear strike against another nation before they do any attack. And people just kind of go on with their daily lives and don't seem to think much of it. So there seems to have been an enormous amount of jadedness that's Set in and I don't know if that can partly explain it, but one of the reasons I you know the main reason actually I, I wrote this book is because I feel we have this we're in this incredible window of opportunity, which is rather short to really steer our future with AI in a good direction. It's now or never. We um, in the short term have the opportunity to uh, stave off an arms race and killer robots and and try to make sure that the job automation doesn't cause a massively divided society. And, and then on the timescale of whatever it takes to get superintelligence, we have that time to answer a bunch of these really crucial questions, which we have to answer for things to be good. You know, How do we build machines we can really trust? How do we get machines to understand our goals, adopt them and retain them? And whose goals should they be in the first place? There are a lot of technical questions. There are also a lot of questions that everybody in the world has to talk about, namely what kind of society we want. And many people seem to take the attitude, no, we'll not worry about that now, you know, before a bunch of dudes on Red Bull switch things on, you know, the hour before they can think that through. No, it might take 20 years to get these answers. So let's start the research now so we have the answers by the time we need them. I, I think there's a massive failure from our governments around the world in funding AI safety research. Frankly, I think it's quite scandalous this is something everybody in the ai community agrees is a great thing to do we want to win this race between the growing power of ai and the growing wisdom with which we manage it but we're spending billions and billions and billions on just making ai more powerful creating pure undirected intelligence and we're spending almost nothing on the research we need to direct this in a beneficial direction by asking these kind of questions i asked you, you you were there when um, we, we teamed up with Elon Musk to start funding the very first AI safety research at the Puerto Rico conference. And uh, I think there's a huge need now to have governments step up and say, hey, you know, yeah, this is just an integral part of our science research that we fund. We're not just going to fund people to build faster computers, but we're also going to fund AI safety research. How do you make computers unhackable? How do you make... Computers that can, can learn, adopt, retain goals. What about this boxing stuff? Stuff. There's panoply of questions. There are a lot of talented people out there who want to work on them and don't have the funding to do so. So now is the, the time for governments to step up.
0: What do you feel about regulation here? Because I know Elon just, I think he did it in a tweet, but he, he said that it was obvious that we needed regulation. As with any other dangerous technology, we need regulation in the, the AI space.
1: That's also a very interesting question, but I, I think the lowest hanging fruit of all, you know, the thing that everybody agrees on, <laughs> is, there is there is this AI safety research to answer these questions. The People want to do it. The AI community is all for it. It's just that the politicians haven't caught on and they're not funding it. So regardless of what we end up doing with government insight, government oversight, you know, government support for, for this research should start it immediately. And if you're a company, it makes sense for you to develop and, and control the intellectual property for stuff that you can make money off of, right? And not share it. But all the companies are happy with people in academia and elsewhere to do the safety research and just share the results from that with everybody, right? So that everybody's self-driving cars can crash less, get hacked less, and everybody's systems get safe. It doesn't make a lot of sense for Private companies to invest in stuff like that that's only going to be valuable maybe in decades. So that's the perfect kind of thing for the world's governments to support.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I share that hope as well. What are some of the applications of AI that you find most interesting at this point, or or that you're most hopeful will come about soon? I mean, this this can be short of of superhuman general intelligence, but just kind of the breakthroughs at the level of autonomous cars that truly work and, and bring down you know, highway deaths by 95%.
1: Well, as I talk about in the book, the answer is basically everything in our society can be improved with intelligence. Everything I love about our civilization is a product of intelligence. So obviously, if we can amplify our own intelligence with artificial intelligence, we can do much better. If you want to focus on saving lives, there are way more people who die in healthcare mistakes than in traffic accidents today. So there's a huge opportunity for better diagnostics, better robotic surgery, and so on. But really in every sector of the economy, things can be done much more intelligently. And uh, I think there's also a huge opportunity in education. You know, we're living in a world now where there's more distraction than education, where there are more people who... uh, know about brad pitt's love life then we can tell you even the most basic things about what's happening in artificial intelligence or world affairs so if we can if we can leverage uh these sort of technologies to get this sort of information out there more like a little bit like in in uh, i explore in the book and and that sci-fi opening that could also help make things a lot better because i think The best strategy, one of the best strategies for making sure that what happens after we get really advanced AI goes well is to try to get our act together as much as possible before then and and create a less messed up society where, where reason and logic plays a greater role than it does today.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many possible applications of this that people haven't thought about. I mean, you take something like the justice system. There's an example you give of the utility of robot judges that could, Integrate all of our ethical and, and legal judgments, but are not vulnerable to the kinds of glitches that human judges obviously are. I mean, there's research that shows that judges impose much harsher sentences when they're hungry, you know, like right before lunch than, than right after breakfast. And that's obviously a bug, not a feature. And who knows what else is like that? That, you know, the lives hang in the balance and we have apes at the wheel when we could have something far more competent at the wheel
1: i agree with you but at the same time to be able to deploy things like that and have people actually trust them you have to have systems that are transparent and understandable you know if you get sentenced to 10 years in jail and you ask your robot judge your honor why and the answer you get is you were sentenced to 10 years in jail because I was trained by one terabyte of data and this is the conclusion, you you probably wouldn't be so psyched about that. And in fact, in the technical research that I'm doing in AI right now at MIT with my research group, AI transparency is actually our, our, our main focus. I call it intelligible intelligence. Today's deep learning systems are incredibly powerful, but they're also inscrutable black boxes where they do cool stuff and you don't really understand why. It's kind of when our kids with their own brain neural networks learn to do cool stuff and you have no idea how they learned to speak English or or other things, right? And we're trying to uh, come up with ways of of taking neural networks that do cool things and, and transforming them into more understandable systems that do... Just as well, yeah. Which could could get more confidence in, in anything from judicial rulings to machines that you put in charge of, of your infrastructure, where you really want to understand them to the point that you can guarantee that they're never going to crash, they're never going to hack get hacked, they never do things they aren't supposed to do.
0: Well, that's that's a a huge separate variable that you've mentioned before, just the the computer security problem which we're dealing with every day now in our. Non AGI world, but the idea that we will rely more and more on these systems without having fully secured them. If hacking is always a potential problem and we've got things like robot judges, you know, deciding people's fates or (laughs) autonomous systems that decide whether or not we should respond with a nuclear strike, the idea that hacking will still be conceivable and that people will be able to use AIs of, of their own invention to hack into systems uh, So you know, that will have competing AIs, essentially. That's a fairly dystopian problem that we, we have to figure out how to iron out.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned this because it's important to remember that this AI safety research funding that I keep harping about isn't just to make sure that things go can go okay if we create superintelligence. But it's important, like right now, they had this event recently where they invited a bunch of hackers to try to hack U.S. voting machines. And I think it was the MIT team that managed to break into one of the machines in in less than one minute. Hmm. Right. So I think it was a deballed machine. And, you know, <laughs> how are you going to trust this stuff if if we are so flippant about about AI safety research that we today and that we just don't give it the resources it, that it deserves. If, if you can't even make your voting machines today safe, why should you trust that your robo-judge hasn't been hacked or that that machine in, in, in the future might control your nuclear arsenal is safe? You, you shouldn't. So this is a really urgent priority. I I do not think it's impossible to create unhackable machines. I think the reason we have this pathetic... Computer security track record is because we just haven't made it enough of a priority. We're stuck in this let's learn from mistakes mindset because the stakes were so small that you can get away with it, you know. And we have to shift into this security engineering mindset where even one mistake is not acceptable and you do the research ahead of time so that the mistakes don't happen.
0: Okay. Well, finally, Max, I'm now mindful of your time, but I want to ask you so all of this is in some measure, a fait accompli. We will will continue to produce intelligent machines. We will continue to automate whatever can be automated unless something catastrophic happens to us in the meantime where we can no longer do any of those things. So we know the direction we're headed. We just don't know how fast. And concerns about the irrelevance or non-utility of human labor now become pressing. And, you know, there are, there are certain jobs that will go away that won't come back. And, and these are not necessarily just blue-collar manufacturing jobs. These are jobs that require even the highest level of, of human cognition. So, you know, the j- certain jobs for mathematicians could disappear before, certainly long before the job of a massage therapist disappears. Mm-hmm. What would you advise people to do to focus on if they are worried about having careers as we automate more and more and more at, at whatever pace?
1: I'm advising my kids to uh, go into careers that, that um, computers are bad at. Careers where people will pay a premium for the labor being done by a person, like for massage therapy or a teacher or many other things. Careers where you have um, a lot of unpredictable situations where you, where you need uh, a lot of creativity, those jobs are going to last longer for sure and stay away from jobs that are very routine, structured. If you spend your whole day in your office typing, you know, looking at a computer screen and typing things back in a predictable manner, <laughs> time to start looking for another job. Uh, but I think also looking a little bit farther forward in time, it's important to be a little bit optimistic also. we were so obsessed, you know, the Luddites apocryphal Luddites during the Industrial Revolution, right, were obsessing about replacing weaving jobs by weaving machines, for example. But they clearly were too narrow-minded because those people who lost those jobs got other jobs. So today we're more broad-minded and say, well, okay, we're not obsessed about any kind of job. We just want there to be some job so people can have an income. But I think that's also too narrow-minded, frankly, because if we can use machines to produce everything we need in terms of goods and services for us. There's this enormous wealth, enough to go around for everybody. And um, maybe the things that the jobs give us, such as income, such as a sense of meaning and purpose, such as a social life, are things we can also get in a different way, better, you you know, without the job part. So if we end up in a situation where most people are enjoying, where everybody gets, if they want to, to have a lifelong vacation and go and do fun stuff, that doesn't have to be such a terrible thing. It, there's going to be enough wealth generated by AI that that's perfectly feasible if we want to. On the other hand, if I own all the AI myself and decide not to share it with anybody and everybody else starves, maybe that's that's less fun. So this this is an example of a question which, We cannot leave just to tech geeks like myself. We need to engage economists and everybody else to have this conversation about what sort of society do we want to create? Do we want to make sure that we have a tradition that there's enough taxation that the government can actually take care of everybody so nobody sinks into horrible poverty? Or do we want to just have uh, some sort of social Darwinist society where people who can't get a job just starve? It's a conversation we need. We should have now, while there's plenty of
0: time. Well, I think the this is something I've spoken about on the podcast before. I, th- I think the the ethic that links a person's claim upon their own existence to doing profitable work. The only way to be in the world and survive is to be doing something that other people want to pay you for. That. Has to unwind in the presence of sufficiently powerful technology that obviates the need for human work. And as you point out, this is, at least on its face, this should be a very rosy picture of, of a future, a, a future in which no one has to do anything to create wealth and no one has to do anything to survive because we have the perfect technology that's just pulling wealth right out of the ether. We have there's enough atoms in reach to uh, do more or less anything we want with because we ha- we now have so much intelligence in hand. The idea that we the idea that we could screw up that level of abundance for merely political <laughs> or or deranged ethical reasons that you know that's that's the worst case scenario of of all really. I mean, just that would be the most embarrassing flame out of the human project. The apes, when given the perfect labor-saving technology, just managed to immiserate and kill one another with it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. In fact, my MIT colleague, Eric Brynjolfsson from the business school, put this very eloquently when we were both on this uh, panel at a recent uh, AI conference, where he said, look, if we... (laughs) cannot make sure that everybody gets better off, even with this huge explosion of of wealth, then shame on us, he said. Shame mm-hmm. on us.
0: Well, Max, it's been great to talk to you again. It's always a pleasure, and, and you're doing some of the most interesting work there is to be done. And it's, it's not only interesting, as you put it, it's incredibly important, I'm convinced. this is, This is the one conversation that will only grow in importance this has got, um, I mean, it's just obvious what the trajectory of relevance is here for this conversation. So thank you for writing this book. It's a fantastic read, and I hope our listeners go straight to the bookstore or to Amazon and get it, because we have only skimmed the surface of it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really, really interesting for me. And uh, I think it's important to remember that this isn't about sitting around and quibbling about what we think is going to happen because the future isn't something predestined that's going to occur to us. It's rather something for us to create. So uh, I'm really hoping that um, this can encourage more people to join this conversation and ask what sort of future we should create so we can all steer in that direction.
0: Well, from your lips to the ears of those who are running this simulation. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, Max. Thank you so much.